Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The reaction function of the Fed has shifted. And I would say it goes back about 12 months. It already leaked into the decision making. And if I wanted to make it really simple for our audience beyond Wall Street, the message from the Fed is as follows. When things used to get better and inflation would pick up, we'd do something. The message from the Fed now is we are going to wait. And we've learned some things over the last 10 years as well. Unemployment can come lower. We can accept a higher infl- inflation rate, perhaps north of 2%. I think that's the basic message coming from this Fed now, Tom. If things improve, we'll st- stand back and let it continue to improve. Nicely explained. You nailed that, John Farrell. And that is a good introduction to the vice chairman of the Fed. What this is about is heavy lifting. Somebody has to go out and construct a 10, a 15, a 20-page paper or speech that actually describes the aspirations of a given central bank. It could be the Bundesbank, the ECB, whatever. On August 31st, Richard Clarida of Columbia, one of our great monetary theorists, did that with Adam Posen over at the Peterson Institute. We're thrilled that the vice chairman can join us this morning to really reform and understand where this Fed is going in a Fed after two dissents at the last meeting. Vice chairman, thank you so much for joining us. What is the aspiration to reflate? How do we get to an inflation that is desirable? Well, thank you, Tom. I'm happy to do your show. Let's look. We have the same goals we've always had. We want maximum employment and we want price stability, which we define as 2% inflation in the long run. But we recognize that the world today looks a lot different than a decade ago, and we're spending a lot of time in the U.S. and abroad at the lower bound on policy rates. That puts downward bias on inflation and upward bias on unemployment. So to offset that bias, that new normal that we're operating in, what we sit in our framework review is that appropriate monetary policy when you come out of recessions and into recoveries will not view 2% as a ceiling. We want to actually spend some time above and below 2% so we can anchor inflation uh, expectations. We gave some very, very significant forward guidance in our meeting. Recently, what we said is that we expect we're going to keep rates at the current level, which is basically at zero, until we've reached maximum employment and until inflation has reached 2%. So lower for longer, and we've given some observable metrics that will indicate right. uh, when that liftoff can happen. The modesty of the vice chairman here, folks, is simple. In 2014, Richard Clarida drove forward the phrase, the new neutral, which was shockingly prescient at the time. I want to go to the robust evolution now you and the theorists are going to and what it means across our radio and TV audience. And it's real simple here. We want to know on the glide path where you step in, do you wait ex post until you finally see a substantial inflation? Do you begin to act along the way? Or is there somewhere in between, as Megan Green says up at Kennedy, is there a place where you see the whites of inflation's eyes and you act? Well, as we've said, and I'm, I'm, let, me, let me state it again, in our meeting, we indicated that we expect that rates will be at the current level, which is basically zero, until actual observed PCE inflation has reached 2%. That's at least we could actually keep rates at this level even beyond that. But we're not going to even begin to think about lifting off, we expect, until we actually get observed inflation and we measure it on a year-over-year basis uh, equal to 2%. Also, we want 
our labor market indicators to be consistent with maximum employment uh, in the in the labor uh, market. And so we've been very clear about that. If you will, that's the whites of their eyes. We want to see actual inflation at 2%. So, Richard, this is really important. Is yes. it fair to say that an overshoot of 2% is not a prerequisite for liftoff then? It's just 2%. Well, what we've said is that inflation, in our judgment and looking at a range of indicators, needs to be on track to moderately exceed 2% for some time. Uh, that'll be a judgment that we make as we get closer uh, to that number. But our guidance is very clear. We want to see actual inflation. We measure it on a year-over-year basis um, at 2%. Uh, and we don't want it to be a fleeting, you know, one quarter and done. Um, and at that point, we'll assess what is the appropriate uh, lift off and the timing, uh, but that's really down the road. It's really the lift off is not till we get actual inflation and maximum uh, employment in line with our objectives. You know, on Wall Street, as always, there's always some confusion because there are various Fed presidents going around saying their own thing. And I think where there is some confusion right now is whether the Fed is simply prepared to tolerate an overshoot or at least no. anticipate one in the future no. or actively no, calibrating be... policy to drive one. So be clear if you can. No. I'll be very clear. I'll be I'll be as clear as I can. We said in our new framework statement that was unanimously approved in in uh, August uh, that appropriate monetary policy following periods when inflation has been persistently below two percent, appropriate monetary policy will aim for the inflation rate to moderately exceed two percent. Uh, for some time. And that's an important difference with our prior framework in which we thought a 2% ceiling was great. We now think that to anchor inflation expectations at 2%, we need coming out of recessions to spend some time above 2% to balance off those times when we've been below. So how do you reconcile that with the forecasts? It's very simple. Um, and I, I'm glad I'm doing this show to make a very obvious but important point. The economy has taken the most severe hit since the Great Depression. We had a 30% collapse in economic activity. We had a 22 million increase in unemployment. Absolutely staggering numbers. The economy now is beginning to recover. Our projections, Jonathan, that we released with our September SEP indicate that our baseline view, and as Chair Powell indicated, there are risks, but our baseline view is that within about three years, we're going to get back to a very low unemployment rate and inflation at our 2% objective. In the prior economic downturn, that took nine years. So we actually see, relative to historical experience, um, a, a, a pretty uh, impressive return in our baseline projection. But that said, we have to support the economy to get to full employment, to get up to our 2% uh, objective. Uh, and at that point, of course, we can then start talking about what happens beyond that. But let's don't forget the deep hole that the pandemic has put us in the world economy in. Absolutely. So that's Rich, the I think, factor. I think you'd appreciate, I think you'd appreciate, though, for some people, though, because it's not in the forecast, yeah. they believe that perhaps policy is not calibrated appropriately to generate that overshoot, that if this Fed wants the overshoot over a forecastable horizon, then they're not doing enough. Well, what we're saying quite simply is that perhaps in a normal recession or perhaps uh, if we were back in February, uh, then obviously uh, getting to 2% and moderately exceeding 2% would be within our forecast horizon. But because of the depth of the shock, the economy has to 
recover. And as I said, in our baseline, that recovery relative to the last downturn uh, will will occur within about three, three plus years. Uh, but until we get to that point, you know, overshooting is just an academic uh, a point. And we actually want to get the economy to 2% inflation and maximum employment. And we think along with fiscal support that that, uh, that can happen. Meanwhile, fund manager after fund manager has come on this show and said that we are at risk of creating an asset price bubble, if not having created it already. How does that factor into your calculus about when to tighten policy? Well, that's a good question. And obviously, financial stability is always, and certainly in the PAL Fed, an important uh, consideration. Uh, financial st- we get regular briefings on financial stability. We issue a twice-yearly uh, report. So we're very attentive and attuned to that risk. But it's also important to remember, Lisa, you know, we have a dual mandate assigned from Congress, which is maximum employment and price stability. Uh, if hypothetically we were to become concerned that financial stability put our maximum employment and price stability goals at risk, then we would have to factor that in. But Lisa, we also believe that monetary policy raising or lowering rates is a pretty blunt instrument. And our inclination and our preference at the Fed is to work with other agencies on regulation, supervision, bank liquidity, uh, and, and other dimensions uh, than, than, than simply raising or lowering rates to I deal g- with financial stability. I guess another way of asking this is how effective can the Fed be without more fiscal support, without another round in Washington, D.C. that's substantial, that injects uh, direct aid to companies, to individuals? Well, as Chair Powell indicated, and we all believe, we do believe, obviously, fiscal policy is for the Congress and the, and the executive branch. But when asked, what we'll say is we do think that additional fiscal support uh, will likely uh, be needed. I think we it's very clear that the CARES Act, which, which passed in March, was really a historic uh, government response to a historic crisis. A $3 trillion package uh, provided significant support to the uh, economy. The economy's made a lot of progress, Lisa. About 11 million jobs have returned, but there's still a deep hole. We still have a very high rate of unemployment. We have a lot of small and medium-sized businesses that are suffering. And so, yes, additional fiscal support will likely be needed. Vice Chairman, I want to go back to your work with Gertler and Galley of years ago. Yeah. Folks, this is acclaimed work from the 1990s, which talked about the dynamics of our system away from the static models of the previous century. Vice Chairman Clarida, we have been shocked by one, two, three once-in-a-lifetime events. And the one that I don't see in the literature, which has been a theme of John Farrow, myself, and Lisa Abramowitz, is the new digital dominance Our nation is being crushed by the shocks of technology. In DSGE models, in what you're grinding through day to day at the Fed, how do you adapt to the shock of this new digital dominance? Tom, you know, it's a great point. And um, and the, the, the quick bottom line is that improvements in technology and productivity are disinflationary. That is, if you don't offset them, they tend to push inflation down. Interesting, in Clara Gallagher, we pointed that out, that you need to run a very accommodative policy, otherwise you get deflation with with technology. And so that is a factor that has been imparting downward bias to inflation. I think technology, along with globalization, along with the new neutral, as you called it, all are working together to 
create disinflationary pressures across the globe that at the Fed that we're trying to that we're trying to offset with our policy framework. Uh, it's important, Vice Chairman, to know that people are listening. A gentleman named Michael, Michael McKee, emails in and says, look, Hi, there seems to be a fiscal a fiscal divide here between Bullard of St. Louis and Powell. And I know that everybody's got their own opinion, as Lisa and John mentioned. But the fiscal urgency right now, how do you fold the shock of an increasing deficit, the delta, the marginal, the first derivative of fiscal shock, how do you fold that into your Fed model? How urgent is it to get that fiscal space, that advantageous space? Well, again, that, that's a decision for the executive and the legislative branch. What I, what I will say about that is the, the economy is recovering robustly, but we're still in a deep hole. So it's important, and I'm sure Mike knows this, that we are recovering, we're growing, and growth will probably be very rapid in the third quarter, but the hole is very deep. Um, and at a point where you've got a deep hole, high unemployment, and, and you have, like the U.S. does, fiscal space, it is appropriate uh, to use that. You know, longer term, obviously, the U.S. needs to get back on a sustainable fiscal path, but you don't want to start that in the midst of the worst uh, economic hit in, in 90 years. Richard Clarida, thank you so much. Jen Farrell, Lisa Bramanis, I really thank you for this follow-on to your important paper of August 31st. He is the vice chairman of the Federal Reserve System. The old court at Wells Fargo, and we're thrilled that Mike Schumacher could join us this morning. Michael, is the enthusiasm for equities a foundational belief in his chair, Vice Chairman Clarida says our recovery in three to three plus years. Is that the core foundation of equity ownership? No, I think the core foundation is pretty simple. It's the central banks have your back. When the Fed came in, when other central banks came in back in March and announced program after program, just about every day there was something new. They made it pretty clear that they were taking out really some of the awful scenarios. That's why we think the risk assets have done so well. On top of that, you've got the Fed and various central banks buying corporate bonds and whatnot. So that's the big push. It's not the long-term economic view. Will that push continue? Will you still get central bank aid that can elevate and sustain stock valuations? You can get central banks that at least promise to stay on hold for a very long time, as the Fed has done and as Richard Clarity emphasized a few minutes ago on your show, Tom. But when you think about additional policies, it's difficult to see a lot of incremental work. So, sure, the Fed could buy more bonds. Maybe that happens. The Fed could make promises to keep rates low for an even longer period of time. Perhaps the ECB can ramp up its quantitative easing. But in terms of something radically new, it's hard to see where that would come from. Meanwhile, in fiscal, uh, in fiscal talk land in Washington, D.C., not making a lot of progress, as Tom was talking about. And as those talks drag on, inflation expectations over the next five to ten years is just sagging. It's just bled downward in a steady drip lower. Is this really the main driver in inflation here, fiscal support? And, and really, the Fed is not really that capable of juicing price increases from here. Yeah, Lisa, it's interesting. We look at inflationary expectations in general and think about it from a market's perspective. We typically focus on break-evens from tips. I know it sounds a bit arcane, but in general, they're driven by two things. One is their risk on assets. So as equities have gone up over the last six months, tips break-evens have gone up with them. That's all well and good. And secondly, they respond to realized inflation. And I think that's that second point is the one you're hitting on. Realized inflation doesn't look like it's going up dramatically anytime soon, maybe somewhat next year. And that, until it really picks up quite a bit, is going to make it tough for inflation expectations broadly to increase. Mike, I said earlier on, 
that this bond market was just a total snooze. We've been stuck in the middle of this range for so long. You've been looking for those high yields for quite a while now. You and I have been talking about it for months. It feels like years. Mike, are you still of that view, of that opinion? We think yields go up, John, but we're not in the camp anymore. They go up dramatically. So, for instance, let me flesh that out. By the end of this year, we'd say the 10-year yield gets to 90, 100 basis points, something like that. Next year, very dependent on the path for COVID and, of course, the elections. But in terms of a baseline, say one and a quarter to 150. And in terms of getting to even 90 basis points this year, that, that to us seems pretty simple. If you get a move in the election toward Trump, that should probably do it right there. And if by some chance Trump were to win, you could see yields go dramatically higher. So there's certainly a scenario that gets there. But I agree with you. It's been awfully calm in the bond market for a long time now. My reason I asked the question, I just wonder if you're rethinking the outlook for the U.S. economy and the Federal Reserve and policymakers, not just of the Fed, but also fiscal authorities, their ability to generate a recovery that actually leads to high yields on a sustained basis, actually leads to a hiking cycle. Now, it may seem absurd, but we've seen this play out in Europe, in Japan. Why can't it play out in the United States as well? It could. We could wind up in a situation here where yields just stay low for a very, very long time. Think about Mario Draghi's term at the ECB, eight years at the helm, he never hiked. Now, Powell's already hiked a few times, but still, you can imagine a case where there just is no traction economically. Now, let's hope that's not true. One benefit the U.S. has versus Europe and Japan, for sure, is the economy is much more flexible here, a lot more flexible labor rules, et cetera. So in terms of ramping up, it's probably... U.S. generally a little bit farther ahead, but we haven't seen it kick in just yet. Mike, earlier in the show, John was saying that he needs a Red Bull as he looks at the bond market, and he's not alone. A lot of people <laughs> saying they need some stimulus uh, to get through the day in looking at the snoozer that is the bond market. If there is a breakout in yields one way or another, where do you see it going? Which direction, up or down? We think it's more likely to go up, Lisa, but I'll, I'll caveat that. And that is that if the election results are a real mess and if they're delayed for a couple of weeks, we think yields could drop dramatically and very quickly. And in that case, it's useful. People look back to 2000. But putting it in today's context, we think the 10-year yield, if the results are delayed by a couple of weeks, could fall toward 40 basis points. So that would be a wake-up call for sure. Probably worthy of a Red Bull or two, really, for a lot of people. <laughs> Michael Schumacher there, moving the Red Bull debate forward uh, as well. Michael, it's all great. And, you know, I look at the Fed policy and the hope and the prayer, but the great conundrum out there is, as Lisa brilliantly mentioned to Vice Chairman Clarida, this fear of asset bubbles. Is a consumer discretionary stock with a 32 PE the definition of an asset bubble? Doesn't sound particularly cheap, does it, Tom? Have you a Red Bull. Bottom interest rates. <laughs> exactly. No, I'm asking you seriously here. I mean, these valuations are extraordinary. And to Lisa's question, Steve Roach has bought this up uh, as well. Are these asset bubbles? Yeah, it's, the bubble term is interesting. People talk about it quite a bit. It's hard to define it. What exactly is a bubble? Now, to me, a bubble is something where prices explode upward with no tie to fundamentals and no clear link to policy changes. And what we've had in the last six months is a little bit different because policy shifts have really boosted assets dramatically. So I'd say it's too soon to tell the Federal Reserve or the ECB that they've really 
put forth a bubble, but that could happen in six or 12 months. There's another way of looking at this, Mike, the idea that we reach a certain point where low yields in and of themselves are no longer an excuse to go into riskier assets. And we got a flavor of that earlier this week with the threat of no fiscal support from Washington, D.C. Are we reaching that tipping point if inflation expectations continue to go down? This is interesting, Lisa, and talking to our traders, one of them has a really good way to put it, Andrew Kreitzer, he says, look, nobody really wants to buy 30-year treasuries at 150 or 10-year treasuries at 70 basis points, but some people simply have to do it. So the way to think about it, perhaps, is how many investors or hedgers out there still really have to do that trade? And I would think the number is dropping pretty dramatically. Someone, Mike, much smarter than me, in fact, a few people much smarter than me, said the price of financial stability was eternal vigilance. And I just wonder, this new reaction function at the Fed, whether it sacrifices some of that vigilance. Well, it's, I would say it's a slow look at vigilance there, John, because the Fed will still care, certainly, about the path of inflation. But it does mean it's a lot less interested in fluctuations, meeting to meeting, quarter to quarter, that sort of thing. So you make a good point. We're probably not going to have as much of a ruckus around every press conference or every commentary from Jay Powell or Richard Clarida, but it'll be more evident what path the Fed is on well in advance. Mike, great to catch up. As always, good to see you. Mike Schumacher there of Wells Fargo on this bond market and Fed policy. Let's bring in Victoria Fernandez, shall we? Crossmark Global Investments Chief Market Strategist. She joins us right now. Victoria, great to catch up with you. As always, walk me through that. You've identified the same thing, the volatility. What's behind the pickup in vol that we're seeing right now in equities? Yeah, John, I mean, it goes to what you guys are saying. There's volatility in the markets, but we think the underlying fundamentals are still strong. So the volatility we see it in the futures really going around the election time, those October futures, which encompasses November 3rd. We've seen a lot of movement there. So obviously, increased of, of COVID cases in the UK and in Europe is going to be driving that. We've talked before about how the volatility in the market is really driven by COVID more than anything else. Talks of vaccine. We had Pfizer out yesterday talking about their vaccine trials. J&J made their announcement this morning about their phase three trial that they're doing. And obviously you tie in with some of that, the fact that now you have a Supreme Court issue and is that gonna push some of the stimulus that you guys were talking about further down the road? And that leads to, again, increased volatility, although underlying economic fundamentals seem to be trending okay. Victoria, I wanna congratulate you on your research note that you talk about a barbell strategy where you're talking about holding on to the high-flying text and adding to it as well. Why are so few people talking about that? You know, it seems that a lot of investors tend to want to go all in um, on a sector, and they really find themselves chasing the market and chasing those headlines. That's a very dangerous position to be in. We like to take that longer-term perspective. And so if you do that, you have to say, look, longer-term, yes, these names have really moved up. We've seen that with the the high-flying tech names that you mentioned. But we think there's still more runway for them, not just because of COVID, but because of the way things have changed on a permanent basis. We know people are going to go back to work, but you're still going to need more broadband. You're going to need more data infrastructure. There's things that people are doing like telemedicine that are going to continue. So keep some of those names there. But we all are looking at the recovery process. We are looking at some of those staple names, some cyclical names that you should have in your portfolio to increase your exposure across the board. For a longer term investor, a barbell strategy is what keeps your uh, portfolio from being too volatile. A lot of investors, Victoria, come 
on this program reassert their confidence in an ongoing rally over the longer term in equities. And they cite the credit markets as being well-behaved as a reason for that confidence. You yourself mentioned that in a recent note. And yet we have seen a number of pretty big outflows from the largest high-yield bond ETF of late. We're starting to see credit spreads creep up just a little bit. At what point do you start to pay attention? Well, I think you have to constantly pay attention to that credit market. I mean, you guys were talking about how the 10-year Treasury has been closing at 66, 67 basis points continuously. And if you look at the technicals on the Treasury market, you've got that triangle forming. And it seems kind of like a coil that's starting to wind up. And I'm not sure whether we're going to see rates shoot higher or shoot lower. But I think we're getting to a point where we're going to see some movement. Then we'll see credit markets move as well. But you have to watch and see, especially with earnings coming up um, next month, what we think we're going to see from these companies, are they going to report some strong balance sheets like we saw out of Nike last night? If so, then maybe you see a little more strength in that credit market as some of the fear starts to come back. The numbers from Nike, absolutely phenomenal. And the commentary as well, we can thrive in this environment. Victoria, how difficult is it to find the winners that other people haven't already identified? It just feels like everyone is already in the same trade. It does feel like that to an extent, but I think it all comes down to that fundamental analysis that you have to do on these companies. Like we said, don't go all in on a particular sector. Find those names where they have the strong balance sheets. We talked a minute ago about broadband. Charter Communication is a great example of that. They're using their free cash flow to pay down their debt. Look for companies that are doing things like that during this time period to strengthen their <clears throat> position so they'll be solid during volatility. You can see it in names like McCormick. You can see it in bigger names like Walmart that people are used to. So that fundamental analysis for us, finding those low net debt levels on companies, that's going to be key. What about their ratios, the PE multiple price to cash flow? It's just stunning where these are set. These are not nifty 50. This is almost once in a lifetime valuations. No, you're right, Tom. And you, you do have to pay attention to those numbers. But I think a lot of that, too, I mean, we've got rates that are so low right now. That cost of capital is so low that when you go and you look at some of the P.E. earnings, I'm not sure that that's a valid valuation component at this point. We like to look at free cash flow. We like to look at the management that people have in place. Those are some of the key ratios that we're looking at in regards to cash flows um, in order to see if a company can withstand the volatility that we anticipate we're going to see over the coming quarter. Victoria, good to see you. Great to hear from you. Victoria Fernandez there of Crossmark Global Investments. Right now, Andrew Hollenhorst joins us. He's with Citigroup, their global markets chief U.S. economist. And we get lucky today because Hollenhorst was at UCLA under the giant Roger Farmer. And what's so important here is Farmer Hollenhorst was an important paper ages ago on what Richard Clarida is best known for. I'm not going to go into it right now. It's a lot of theoretical mumbo-jumbo. But Andrew Hollenhorst has had the privilege of diving into the minutiae of dynamic models of guessing what the future would be. With that knowledge, Andrew Hollenhorst, and your wonderful work with Professor Farmer, does the Fed have a clue what it's doing trying to reshape its model into a new reality at the zero bound? Yeah, I, it's it's a great way to introduce it. And let me just say, Roger Farmer was a great mentor at, at UCLA and very grateful for the, the privilege of working with him. Um, but, but this idea of trying to marry the theory with how you actually get to an operational monetary policy, I think is exactly, exactly what we're talking about right now. So 
theoretically, it makes a lot of sense to think about having a moderate overshoot of the 2% target. You're trying to get inflation expectations more stably around 2%. But operationally, how do you go about doing that? And that's why I think we have a lot of agreement on, on the theory, actually, and less agreement about operationally what we're going to do next. Well, the operationally here is, is John Farrell would eloquently state, is get out a crystal ball. What's the, <laughs> what's the new crystal ball for the Fed? And so I think what, what they've told us is maybe a little bit less of the peering into the crystal ball and more of just looking at the conditions on the ground as they are. And that's partly because we spent so much time, if you go back five years or 10 years ago, thinking about what's the natural rate of unemployment? Is there a way that we can kind of deduce that from what we're seeing in the economy? And then as we get to a low enough unemployment rate, then we know we're getting to where there will be inflationary pressure. And you kind of do the backwards induction and you're raising rates as soon as unemployment is getting close to that number. The issue with that is although theoretically the natural rate of unemployment is a great idea, empirically it's hard to identify. So you, so you end up in this strange scenario, which we kind of lived through over the last decade, where you're just constantly revising down that natural rate of unemployment and then saying, well, actually, I think maybe we can go further. So there, there's kind of been a recognition at the Fed not to play that game this time around um, and just to say, let's not respond until we really see evidence that inflation is picking up. Andrew, they've given us a ton of clarity over rate policy and the reaction function and what they would and wouldn't do. Have you got any clarity on the QE program? Yeah, I think that's really that where we're looking for there to be more guidance. And, and I think that that's really been done almost purposefully where things are going well right now. Obviously, the, the, the big dislocations in the market from a few months ago have been cured, um, where we saw a lot of illiquidity in treasury markets. Um, so now there is a shift from you know, you're not just trying to continue market functioning in a healthy way. You're trying to actually support the economy um, and exactly how much they're going to do, what the composition is going to be, what the maturity structure is going to be. Those are all decisions that they need to make. But I think that's probably a December or later um, decision. And for now, things are going well. So they've just kind of left things where they are. Vice Chair Richard Clarida on this program in 23 minutes time, Andrew, write the first question for us. What would you ask? I think what I'd really like to know is, is really going back to, to, to what Tom was asking about initially, which is, OK, we know that the Fed is very likely to keep rates low for a considerable period of time. Um, we know that they want to see some evidence that inflation is picking up. But what does that evidence look like? And I think that's something that Chair Powell was asked in the press conference and we didn't really get a clear answer about. And I'm not sure that there's really agreement within the committee so that there's kind of agreement at a very high level on the idea that, yes, we want to get inflation stably at 2%. We want to see inflation expectations moving higher. But but what would it actually take? Let, let's imagine a scenario where, as it has been, data continues to surprise to the upside, the recovery continues, inflation is close to 2% again. And, and actually, I mean, if we're looking at the data right now, and it looks like in April we'll be above 2%. It's a base effect, but, but we'll be above 2% in April or May. So maybe a more interesting discussion there. But what what exactly does that Fed reaction function look like? What would it take to get to that first hike? Andrew, aside from the evidence that the Fed needs to see, uh, on the fiscal side, they definitely are requesting, at least Fed Chair Jay Powell is requesting, more fiscal support from Washington. And yet from the U.K., we're hearing uh, that they're not necessarily going to continue the furlough program. And there's a similar kind of sentiment here in the U.S. Does the economy move more like a motorboat or a barge? In other words, if policymakers get this wrong, and there is a downturn in the economy, how quickly can they act to prop it back up? So, so there, there is a lot of momentum once you start moving one way. And I think that the good news is that the direction of travel right now is in the upward direction. So you have that positive momentum behind you. You, you also have 
this issue or this positive development where because the income support has been so great over the last few months, we've had a substantial amount of savings, about a trillion in savings that households have done, so that even if we have some of this fiscal slowdown, households can come in with that savings and continue to spend. But now to your point, if you're actually thinking about, well, this isn't gonna get done pre-election and it's not gonna get done in the lame duck, I, I think it will by the time we get to the end of this year, but let's say it doesn't get done even through the end of 2020, then you can start moving in the other direction and then the momentum is going against you and that's a much harder place to, to climb out of. If we do not get another round of fiscal support, how long will it be before we hit that 2% average target of the feds? I, I, I think it will likely be longer. I mean, again, we're kind of looking in the short term here where we can get to a level above 2%, but remember, we still have the unemployment rate at 8.4% and that's with a lot of people that have actually dropped out of the labor force. So a lot of slack that's out out there, um, you really would like to see more fiscal. And, and I would say that the, the positive, the positive here is that you do have bipartisan agreement that more fiscal is necessary. You have the Fed saying more fiscal is necessary. So it's actually quite different than where we were in, say, 2011 or 2012, when there was a real debate about should we do more fiscal. Everyone kind of agrees we should do more fiscal. Unfortunately, the politics is standing in the way of that right now. And the priorities have changed. Andrew, great to catch up, sir. Andrew Hollenhorst, Citigroup Global Markets Chief, U.S. Economist. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.